Welcome to Bioethics On Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. Today's episode explores one of humanity's most fundamental questions. What does it mean to be a person? For millennia, people have found answers by appealing to mankind's connection to a higher power. And even today's pluralistic culture affirms that personhood is the foundation of human rights, although its definition of the concept is vague at best. How should we define personhood? Can it be defined at all, or only recognized and acted upon? How do we carry out a universal effort to protect the dignity of the human person? especially for those at the margins of society. To talk to us about the different approaches to this question, we are joined by Dr. James Beauregard, a lecturer on neuropsychology at Riviere University in Nashua, New Hampshire. Well, Dr. Beauregard, thank you for coming on the show. My pleasure. We're here today to talk about different conceptions of human dignity, uh, specifically a more classical theistic-based paradigm as opposed to a postmodern anthropology. So I want to start uh, by reading two uh, different excerpts about human dignity, one from uh, philosopher Mark Tesh and the other from ethicist Roberto Andorno. Mm -hmm. And um, Dr. Tesh says... Um, identifies human dignity as a grounding principle of human rights that at bare minimum all, all human beings are to be dignified as humans. Mm -hmm. Now, this sounds very similar to Adorno's talking about the unconditional worth that everyone has mm -hmm. simply by virtue of being human. Mm -hmm. Now, what are your reactions to these two, um, these two ideas about dignity? Yeah. Um, you know, I think they're both on to something, but the first one you mentioned, I mean, there, there are underlying philosophical positions that come into play that can cause problems. Um, you know, Adorno talking about um, you know, individual worth and just, you know, by virtue of being human, uh, you, you have that worth is a much broader notion of dignity. Uh, the other author talks about you know, dignity as a grounding for human rights. However, he's coming from a postmodern perspective which rejects any kind of grand narrative. And so it's a much, it, while it sounds the same, it's a much more narrow understanding of dignity. And undergirding both of those positions is the fundamental question of what does it mean to be a person? And they give different answers to that. And that really kind of governs a lot of what is going to flow from that point forward. Can you uh, go into a little bit of detail? What do you mean by rejecting grand narratives? Yeah. Postmodernism um, rejects what they call grand narrative, sort of a broad sweeping history of you know, personhood, history in general, but talks instead about local narratives where people and ideas can have local stories. But as we live in a, a multicultural world, they're essentially arguing that there is no kind of overarching meaning to being human, but that it's developed locally. Um, and you know, in a sense, it's a step back toward relativism, where what's true in one culture may or may not be true for another. So it takes the whole notion of truth and just sort of localizes and relativizes it. In that context, when you ask the question, you know, what does it mean to be a person? 
the postmodern answer is, well, it depends on who's asking the question and out of what uh, kind of standpoint they're coming from, a particular culture, a particular time. And you know, I think partly connected to that is the notion of historicism, where what's true for us today here may not necessarily be true tomorrow or true in the past. So it's a, it's a much more limited understanding of persons and of how we can talk about and think about ourselves and how we understand you know, even our own history and the history of humanity in general. You know, Christianity itself, for example, I think is kind of the grand narrative because it deals with everything from the moment of creation through the fall, redemption, and ultimately the eternal life of God. Uh, a postmodern vision would have a really hard time seeing that as something that is universally applicable. Real quick before we uh, delve into some more specifics, Tesh's mm -hmm. example has some similarities to some of the founding principles behind, say, the uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights and things like that, mm -hmm. correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Could you explain those uh, that relationship a little bit? Yeah. Going back to that first notion you mentioned, that human dignity is the grounding for human rights, you know, it's often mentioned in terms of the UN Declaration that um, everybody talked about human dignity and said that it is the foundation, but that declaration and many of the documents that talk about human dignity don't really explain what it is. That's sort of taken as a given that we all have dignity and that it therefore leads to certain implications, at least to rights uh, that individuals have, and also responsibilities and duties for those who have to protect or guarantee those rights. So there's a common denominator in all of these that yes, persons have dignity, but not necessarily agreement on what exactly dignity means and, how, and, and from a philosophical perspective, how does that yield human rights? What's the process by which you get from dignity to rights? So, you know, in, in the Universal Declaration, there was broad agreement that you know, persons have dignity and that there are certain rights that need to be guaranteed by all governments because they transcend the political but they kind of left the issue of defining human rights for later. You know, we know what it is in a broad sense. We agree that persons have it, but we can't really put a nice, succinct description of what it is. But we'll do that later. <laughs> All right. So let's let's jump in then. And before we start talking about the more contemporary notions of this idea, let's look at some of at the uh, at at the Catholic understanding of it. So we mm -hmm. briefly describe. Um, the Catholic Church's concept, uh, understanding mm -hmm. of this concept, uh, it's actually written a lot on human dignity, right? Yes, John Paul II in particular, who, you know, prior to his becoming Pope, was, was a personalist philosopher and wrote within the, the domain of personalistic philosophy, kind of talking about persons as the point from which you began um, thinking about individuals uh, in the world. But, you know, the Church in general, in, in its long tradition, sees our dignity grounded in our being created in the image of God, and Yamago Dei, and that that presence in us makes us of inestimable worth, that each human being is unique um, of you know, priceless worth, you know, and that dignity therefore needs to be protected. But you know, it's that notion of us being God-bearers, because God is present in us and we see God in the face of the other, that imposes on us certain duties toward other people in terms of respecting the dignity both of ourselves uh, and of others. When there's a theological concept uh, uh, such as we're born in the image and likeness of God. There also tends to be a practical corollary, if you will. So mm -hmm. there seems to always be the theology as well as the social teaching side of it mm -hmm. as well. Um, how mm -hmm. does this, um, this principle that we are created in the image and likeness of God connect to Catholic social teaching? 
Uh, it connects to the most fundamental level in terms of human action, the moral life, and that given that you know, part of what makes us human, and the church has kind of held this fairly consistently, are the, the two realities of reason and freedom. We're able to act freely to make our own choices, and to do so is to act morally because all of our actions are ordered toward a good or at least toward a perceived good. So it has implications across the moral life in any aspect of human action human dignity is present, and that means certain things that may be done or not be done, certain things that encourage human dignity, certain things that detract from it. You know, from Leo XIII forward, that notion of dignity and the dignity of persons was taken over into the world of work and the world of social justice. What rights do workers have in terms of protecting their dignity at the height of the Industrial Revolution when people were moving into the cities, working for very low wages? Um, he spoke up at that point and said, you know, workers have certain rights as human beings created in the image of God, um, given those characteristics and have a capacity to act morally, and that, that you know, employers have an obligation to give people things like a living wage so that they can have a family and raise it um, so they, they don't starve, basically. But he was talking right at that point, long before it was fashionable to talk about unions and things like that, that there are certain things grounded in us based on our creation in the image of God and the gifts that we have that ought to be protected. And from that notion spun out you know, a century of social justice teaching. So would it be, and I know we're going to get more into this later, would it be fair mm -hmm. to say that one of the fundamental differences between the Catholic tradition of human dignity and the postmodern tradition of human dignity is that the first bases it, uh, the first is geared towards protecting the weak from the strong, and the second is geared towards fostering cooperation that we just know is necessary for a healthy society. I, yeah, I think that's not a bad definition at all. You know, in the first part, protecting the weak from the strong, I mean, the strong have to be recognized as having dignity as well. That, that also needs protecting. And there's that notion there that when someone strong abuses someone who's weak, both of their dignities are violated. Um, so it's the dignity of all persons. In a more postmodern perspective, it tends to be more secular. So you can't look to faith, you know, creation in the image of God as a, a source that transcends um, all other political systems and things. You have to find another way to do it. And oftentimes that comes in terms of human activity, speech, discourse, that others deserve to be heard and respected. Uh, so it's, it's uh, in many ways, a more shallow notion of dignity. And many of the contemporary sort of secular notions about dignity end up being grounded in um, a philosophy of functionalism, that defining what it means to be a person is based on personal activity, usually defined by the particular philosopher, with the logical consequence of that being, if there's no personal activity observable, there's no person present. And as soon as people start making those determinations themselves, people get left out. You, you mentioned functionalism. You've mentioned rejection of grand narratives. Mm -hmm. What are some of the other complaints? You know, what, what's the laundry list of complaints that secular ethicists bring against uh, the traditional conception of human dignity? A lot of those objections are you know, kind of based on the history of religion, saying that you know many religious faiths have committed violations of dignity. You kind of look back at the history of every major religion. There are periods of violence or periods of trying to force other people to believe, and that those uh, experiences as grand narratives, they essentially argue they don't work. Throw the baby out with the bathwater. We have to find some other way to think about this. So to eat, to begin from a religious perspective, 
for a postmodern view is problematic because that religious perspective is claiming to be kind of an overarching vision of what it means to be human, what it means to act, what it means to be moral, you know, what it means for all of us from the individual to the family, to the community, to, to larger political systems to make our way in the world together. So to even mention notions of religion then become problematic for postmodernism because it, it's at most you can have a local story, not a, one that encompasses the whole human race. Even though uh, many of these intellectuals and members of the general populace do not recognize a theistic explanation for human dignity, they still mm -hmm. recognize, as we mentioned before, that it's important to establish a baseline for shaping and measuring our interactions with each other. So yes. now that we've gone over some of the reasons why they don't like the classical approach, why they think it's flawed, it doesn't work, uh, what are mm -hmm. some of the ways that they have approached this uh, this problem? Mm -hmm. yeah, the, the approach, well, broadly speaking, first of all, it's an approach from reason rather than from faith. It's easy to ground human dignity from a religious perspective. We talk about the image of God and God creating us. It's much harder to do from the perspective of reason, um, but it should in principle be possible. We should be able to articulate at least some basic norms about um, how we should treat each other, like torture is always wrong, things like that, that we have the capacity through our use of reason to do so. Um, and the other thing I did not mention before is a lot of the post-structuralist thinking really uh, has its grounding in the scientific revolution and the long history of the influence and the relationship between science and philosophy. So part of what's undergirding that whole worldview is that there's a scientific worldview there which eschews any kind of understandings of terms like essence or nature, human nature, you know, metaphysics, so when you take all that out of the picture, you have really a more kind of pragmatic approach to things to say, where can we find at least some common denominators that we can all agree on? Or what's left when you take God out of the picture? And what's left is us. And what is it about us that one can make an argument is special or deserves protecting? You know, part of the problem with that view is that people often don't come to full agreement as you look across cultures and across time about what those things might be. Is the agreement... The, the idea of, of, you know, sharing the common denominators because uh, based on uh, objective empiricism, is this a mm -hmm. fair claim to make that you can find common denominators because of this? Can you find common denominators? Yes. And I think when, when individuals of different cultures approach each other, um, it is possible to do that. There needs to be sort of an open-minded dialogue and not an assumption that you know, we're going to put all of the religion out of the picture. But if we're really going to, from the postmodern perspective, if we're really going to listen to others, we have to listen to all of what they have to say. And I remember having a conversation many years ago with a Cambodian refugee. Uh, who was a physician, but actually working as a school teacher. And as the two of us talked, it became very clear. We were essentially moving out of a very similar, you know, moral kind of tradition and a view of, of what was right and wrong. You're coming from two completely different cultures and things, but there were so many common denominators that our vision of, what it means to be a person and how it means what it means to act in the world we're more alike than different so i think practically speaking that certainly is possible there are certain you know common denominators that just are you know based on being human the way we treat infants and children the way we treat each other the things that that you know going all the way back to the aristotelian tradition what helps human beings flourish and what doesn't and there are common denominators in that because all of us are human we all have you know similar bodies similar psyches and spirits and there are things that we can see you know, across the whole of human history help that to flourish or inhibit it. So the notion that there's the possibility in reason to reach common denominators, I think, is a real one, a practical one, and a doable one, as long as the people coming to the table 
are willing to do so with, with open minds. So as long as we find our common denominators, and although those are from different traditions for different reasons, uh, once mm-hmm. we reach um, common ground, are some of the, I guess, you know, plur- pluralistic postmodern approaches, are, are some of them useful uh, for moving forward after common ground has been found? I think they can be, and I, but I think what happens in that process is that once some agreement is reached on, you know, what are some of the basic things that promote human flourishing that ought to be protected, everybody can agree on what those things are, but the way they're going to come to that and justify it is going to take them back into their own particular traditions. And part of what postmodernism focuses on is on discourse and respect for the other, listening to the other. So that notion is there at its core of, of conversation. Um, of being willing to, to listen to others and to try to come to some common ground. So I think it, the, the thing that it brings to the table is a willingness to discuss and to listen, you know, even potentially when there are, are fundamental disagreements on where different people are coming from. Even in that context, there's a possibility of agreeing about some things that promote human flourishing, some things that, that promote human dignity, others that don't. And, and from a you know, very practical point of perspective, people can agree on those things, even if their reasons for doing so may differ. You talked about the uh, postmodernism really emphasizes listening to other people. Mm-hmm. So let's, uh, let's talk about, about that aspect of, of postmodernism real quick. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. based on listening to people on the shared dialogue, how does that then merit somebody human dignity? You know, essentially, you, you're dealing there with the problem of kind of what undergirds the places that people are coming from. What you end up there with is agreement. Okay, we can agree that this is human dignity and that this is what can be done to promote it. The difficulty postmodernism would have is that, you know, 10 years from now, other people having the conversation might come up with something very different, and then that will become what human dignity is. And 100 years from now, the same type of thing. So there isn't a sort of undergirding that really focuses on the human person and what's unique to us, what, um, you know, what is it that in our nature, what kind of enduring aspects of being human are priceless, are beyond worth. Uh, the capacity to look to that, to something permanent, unchanging um, is much more difficult to do from a postmodern perspective, one that focuses more on empirical um, understanding of things, one that looks at the observable, what can be known through the senses. Um, it's harder to kind of look to the human person in and of ourselves and say, you know, these are the things that are unchanging across all of humanity. Essentially, it's, it's a different way of saying there can't be a grand narrative, so we can't look at persons and say there are things in us that are essential and eternal and unchanging that can serve as a grounds for human dignity. What you have left when you take that out is we can agree that right now, in general, these are the things that we want to include under the umbrella of human dignity, and we can come to some agreement about how those things can be protected and encouraged. Would it, would it be fair to say that um, although listening, you know, this idea of dialogue and listening to, uh, to others is very good, it can be extremely mm-hmm. difficult to acknowledge and identify what voices you have to listen to if you do not have a concrete, unchanging idea of the person? True. And, you know, when you don't have that sort of underlying notion, I think, you know, all of us have a philosophy of human nature and a philosophy of persons, whether it's articulated or not. And that is going to impact 
who takes who comes to the table and takes part in the conversations. You know, for instance, in, from a postmodern perspective, should children be part of the conversation where they're not as available to kind of engage in discourse? It's going to be a long time before a two-year-old can sit at a table and talk about these kinds of issues. You know, do they come to the table as well to, to present themselves? Think about someone who is, you know, has dementia or has a stroke, someone who can't engage in discourse and conversation. What's their place at the table and how might they communicate? So when you focus on, on what's in the end a functional kind of approach, I mean, it comes out of philosophical behaviorism in the 50s where, you know, moving away from Freudian theory and looking at what's going on inside the person, you look only at observable behavior and you just try to do things to fix the behavior. So it stays on that surface. But when what you have is observation of activity as defining of persons, then you're into trouble because if there's no activity, some folks are going to get left out. Or one thing that, that people talk about in terms of action theory and things like that is that you know, basically they draw a line and say above this line you're a person, below it you're not. And part of what's happened philosophically is, and, and in bioethics as well, is there's been an effort on the part of some secular bioethicists to, to set, set apart the notion of person and human being. So the human being occurs, you know, a person's a human being from conception until death, but the, that in that lifespan, the notion of person shrinks. So sometime after you're born, you become a person, and you may lose your personhood before the end if you have an injury or you know, an illness or something that robs you of that ability to act and interact with the world. So in this functional, functional view, it would seem like this is where the church comes back into play as the voice for the people who can't come to the table on their own. Absolutely. And that, and that is, in a sense, is what much of the church's social justice tradition has talked about, those who are powerless, who don't have a voice. And that goes all the way back to prophecy in the Old Testament. You know, the, the, you know uh, oftentimes in the popular culture, prophecy is thought of as kind of predicting the future. But if you read the prophets, most of what they were talking about was shouting at the kings for not treating their own people well. And the notion of speaking to the powerful, words of justice, and words of dignity about the way they treat those for whom they're responsible. So part of what, you know, some of the Roman Catholic tradition and Christian tradition in general, but other traditions as well, bring to the table is a much more robust notion of persons about who counts, you know, who counts as a person. Uh, you know, the German philosopher Robert Spayman, for instance, argues that, you know, just membership in the human race confers with a dignity. It's not a matter of function or what you can do or not do, your age, illness. If you're a human being, then you have dignity, and that's inalienable. It can't be taken away. It's part of the it's constitutive of who you are. So it's a it's a deeper notion, a broader one, and one that allows everyone to be included. You know, there's no line below which you can't be considered a human being. It becomes an issue in bioethics as well as how we deal with the old, the young, and and the vulnerable because they often do not have a voice, but they do have dignity. And what happens when those around them are responsible for making care decisions? What does it mean? You know, what your notion of what it means to be a human being is going to govern the bioethical decisions that are made. If someone doesn't count as a person, that you know, puts you on one course of action. If someone does count as a person, potentially a very different one, particularly when you're dealing with end of life and death and dying kinds of issues. Great. So before we get on to, to some uh, kind of practical uh, examples, I want to hit one mm -hmm. last, uh, one last uh, facet of um, postmodern uh, post thought, which is mm -hmm. the evolution, evolutionary biology uh, idea of human dignity, mm -hmm. where uh, dignity is a shorthand uh, for a complex of reci reciprocity that serves the biological aims of our species. 
evolutionary biology and to a great extent neuroscience as well touch on those issues. And essentially they try to define human dignity by, in terms of things like autonomy and respect. You know, probably the most famous article is one Ruth Macklin wrote early in the 2000s, which was titled, you know, Dignity is a Useless Concept. And she argued in that that dignity is the term dignity is too vague, and what we're really talking about is autonomy, and that that's what needs to be protected, uh, in a sense of why persons need to get respected. So, when you look at those kinds of notions, um, it's a narrow view again, and a lot of these come out of evolutionary biology as well. Uh, they use what I call a bottom-up approach, and what's needed is a top-down approach. And there's a Scottish philosopher in the 20th century named John McMurray. So I think captured this perfect, perfectly, where he talked about the whole history of modern science and modern philosophy as going through you know, three broad stages, um, philosophy really mirroring science and undergirding this you know, certainly impact on the way the church thought about things, where if you look at the beginning of the scientific revolution, you're dealing with things like Newtonian physics and matter and motion, and that was kind of dominant understanding of what the universe was at that point. Once we got into the 1800s and Darwin was publishing his books on evolution, things advanced a bit more to a biological and organic understanding of the world. So it's not you know, at the foundation, there's still Newtonian physics, matter and motion, and all of our notions of the world are mechanical ones. The, the inevitable consequence of that is determinism. You know, this, what happens depends on what happened before and what happened before that. That just got transferred over into biology, where all these biological mechanisms, humans, animals, were all seen as just you know, kind of on that evolutionary spectrum. So there was nothing distinct about persons. McMurray in the 20th century talked about that original kind of field of thought, a metaphor of the mechanical world, the biological world, but also above that, the personal world. And that being a person is something, in fact, distinct and different from being an animal. It's not a, simply a question of further advancement, but persons are capable of things that animals and, and, and just basic organic matter are not. One of the difficulties with the evolutionary notions and anything that is kind of out of that interaction of science is it tries to take a bottom-up approach to talk about human beings. So we're, we're you know, physical matter, we're biological beings, and then try to explain all the other stuff about us that from those two worldviews, you know, how does, how does matter and motion, the laws of physics, and biology explained things like great works of art, music, things like that. And what Murray argued and what the personalist tradition in general um, has argued is that that bottom-up approach is doing it backwards. What we need to do is start with the notion of persons and that we understand those other levels by subtraction. If you take away what is uniquely personal about us, you're left with the biological and the organic world. If you take that away, you're left with the physical world. And that when we talk about those other things, we're really talking about them by way of analogy. You know, these things are aspects of us, are like us, but they can't, can't do justice to what it means to be a person. So, and John Paul II certainly held this kind of perspective when he talked about persons and about dignity, that if we're going to understand those things, the bottom-up approach doesn't work because we can't explain the higher by the lower. And you know, we need to start with the notion of persons and from there look at how we understand all the rest of creation. And that becomes very important, you know, certainly in the Catholic tradition, because our notion of person you know, is itself an analogy. We are persons like the person of God. You know, all the early Trinitarian controversies and Christological controversies were trying to nail down, what does this mean now to say God is, is three you know, and one? And the solution they came up with was three persons and one God, which then imposes on theologians for centuries the need to talk about well, what does it mean to be a person? And if God is a person, how are we then like God? And what does it mean to be created in God's image? It means to be a person like God is a person. So it really does, in the end, come down to 
defining personhood. Mm-hmm. No matter no matter how you try, no matter what method you use, you know we've we've talked yeah. about what three or four different mm-hmm. kinds already. Yeah. Um, but it all hinges on how do you define person? How do you define a voice that has authority mm-hmm. to speak in the community? How do mm-hmm. you define a person who has autonomy? Yes. And there's, I think, a deeper notion, too. They need to push that a step further to say, can persons be defined? When you ask that question, you're asking for a scientific definition of person. So, I mean, I could say you and I are um, you know, three or four pounds of chemicals in a bag of water. You know, is that a good definition of persons? Some would say, you know, persons cannot be defined in a sort of a closed definition because we are by nature open-ended creatures as much as possible for us we don't even know about yet that it's better to talk about a description of what it means to be a person which doesn't minimize in any way and also leaves open to you know new things in the future rather than a closed definition because that's essentially what's happened from the beginning of the modern period when you take a scientific worldview you want a closed definition you can operationalize and test as soon as you close the definition something's inside and something's outside so you know, I would say that, you know, in terms of looking at all these issues, social justice, bioethics, our notion of personhood needs to have a little bit of fuzzy boundary around the edge to account for anything new that we may learn in the future. And that when that is the case, you know, everyone can be included. Nobody gets, nobody's on the inside or the outside with a tight definition around it. It all comes down in the end to, to how we answer the question, what does it mean to be a person? And when we do that from a scientific perspective, um, and we try to come up with a definition, you know, list characteristics, you know, something's always going to get left off the list, and somebody, which means that someone is going to get left out. So I think what serves us best in the bioethical domain, uh, social justice domain, is to have as robust a notion of person as we can, um, but one that, that you know, is you know, as complete as it can be now. So you don't take things away from it, but at least leave open the possibility that that understanding may deepen in the future. All right. Well, let's uh, tie up, you know, all of these, all of these concepts with um, some practical examples. Yes, I think one it was actually raised in the National Catholic Bioethics uh, Quarterly recently by Benedict Guevin, who's a, a moral theology professor um, here at Saint Anselm's College, right, uh, right near where I am. And he wrote about the issue of active, deactivating pacemakers and in individuals in the end stage of dementia. You know, can that be done or not? And if you approach it from those two broadly different perspectives, I mean, if, if someone who's in the end stage of dementia, and let's take Alzheimer's disease as, a, as an example of it, um, a typically non-communicative language skills become pretty impaired, the ability to you know, re- even recognize close family members to communicate with them in what we would consider sort of normal conversation, in the end stages of Alzheimer's disease is often absent. You know, in a postmodern world where discourse is kind of how you define persons in action, you know, can you even call that person a person? Is that, is that a human being? Is that a person when they essentially have kind of total care and are not able to engage in any kind of discourse? You know, in contrast, you know, the Catholic vision of that would say that, yes, this is a human being and a person who still has human dignity as an inherent reality of who they are, because even with all of that impairment, this is still a person created in the image of God, uh, one who is suffering, certainly, one who needs care, but to, to say that this person is still a person implies a whole different course of action than saying someone isn't. You know, people like Peter Singer and things who write about you know, these types of issues saying if there isn't, you know, personal activity there, if there's not some observable activity, you no longer have a person there. Um, yeah, 
Benedict gives the uh, essential, the, uh, the response at the end that he would say a tentative no to deactivating the pacemaker. And that comes out of you know, a very clear understanding of Catholic moral tradition where any kind of moral act you know, first is done with reason and freedom. That's what makes it you know, capable of being a moral act. But that a moral act itself is not just a thing you do. It, it, it's, a com- it's a combination of object, circumstance, and intention. What is actually done what are the circumstances in which it's done, and what are the intentions of the actor? You know, in this case, you know, a physician is deactivating a pacemaker. If the intention is to end the person's life, then that bumps you over into the ballpark of either assisted suicide or euthanasia. Um, so you, ha- you have to consider those kinds of issues. And again, when you look at what's going on underneath, it comes back to what's our fundamental notion of what it means to be a person. Is this person in the end stage of dementia? A person or not. I would say they are. Others would say they weren't, and that you know, deactivating a pacemaker is certainly acceptable to do. Um, but you're going to get two very different answers based on whether you take a more behavioristic, functionalist approach versus if you take a more uh, essentialist approach, saying that this is a human being created in God's image who has dignity right, right to the very end. You know, does that mean that a person's life needs to be prolonged indefinitely by every means available? No. Um, you know, at, at some point, I remember, uh, you know, Jay Bryan here once making the comment that, that it, when you think about end-of-life care, you know, there comes a point where a person enters the dying process and nothing that, that happens is going to bring them back. And that at that point, our job turns from curing to caring. And that when every effort is made to keep someone alive, when they have no hope of recovery, you know, part of what we're doing is keeping them from heaven. Yeah. And so, you know, life is a, a, a value, a great one, but not necessarily an absolute one. And the resurrection itself is what makes us able to say that you know there are things that are worth dying for and then there are rights and you know dignity of persons and things that are worth defending sometimes even at the cost of our own lives um i think just the last thing that i would say is that you know when, when asking those questions of human dignity one thing i don't see talked about at all uh, in the literature and i'm actually in the process of writing something about this is in terms of approaching the whole question of dignity is dignity something we define or is it something we recognize? You know, from the scientific perspective, you want to come up with a definition and something you can operationalize and measure. Um, I'll go back to Robert Stamen, who I mentioned you know, earlier, and you know, he would say persons are someone, not something, and that persons in and of themselves are recognized by others, not defined by others. Manuel Levinas would say that, you know, that the face of the other places obligations on us. But it's that notion of recognizing dignity, I think, that is more fundamental. And certainly in the Catholic tradition, we recognize God's presence in others. We recognize the presence of persons. And part of that recognition, I think, comes at the margins. It's when dignity is most profoundly violated that it's most clear to us that human dignity is present you know, in that violation. All of the, the, you, know, you mentioned the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, you know, all the bioethics codes, the Dalmont Report, and everything else that's been done in the 20th century – has not been the result of academics sitting around a table saying, gee, this would be a really good idea. It's been the result of gross violations of human persons and of human dignity. When we look at persons at the margins like that, when they're most violated, that's the time perhaps when it's easiest to recognize what dignity is and what it means. And you know, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was a response to the Second World War, to the Holocaust, to the, the, the 13-year history of, of Nazism in Germany. All those bioethics codes are results of experiments that were done you know, the Tuskegee syphilis study, the plutonium studies that in retrospect were looked at as, as gross violations of human dignity with the concurrent notion that because this has happened, we need to put something in law and in place to make sure that violation doesn't happen again. 
So when dignity is at the margins, I think it's when we see it most clearly. And what has happened historically is that at those margins, the result has been a more universal effort to protect the dignity of the person and really a more robust understanding of what it means to be a person because of those extreme kinds of incidents. Excellent. Thank you very much for coming on the program, Dr. Beauregard. My pleasure. That was Dr. James Beauregard speaking with us about different approaches for determining personhood. Benedict Guavin's article on pacemakers can be found in the spring 2015 issue of the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. For more in-depth discussions on human dignity or to find answers to other bioethical questions, visit our website, ncbcenter.org, and subscribe to our publications, Ethics and Medics, and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. I'm your host, Phil Cerrone. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.